You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Thanks to Beyond Zero for another great show, and welcome to Left After Breakfast. I'm Judith Peppard, hosting the show for Susanna Duffy and her team, who will be back in a couple of weeks. Today is Monday, May the 8th. I hope you're well, keeping safe at home or wherever you are, and making it all work for you. I mean, it's been interesting, some of the the stories that are coming out of this being at home, like people are reported to be making bread and um, discovering, you know, the old art of cooking and uh, even making pickles. That's what we're going to be talking about at the end of the show. Before that, Christian Slattery from the Australian Conservation Foundation joins me to talk about a new report, Water for Coal, uh, which contains some fascinating figures on water use by the coal industry. I know you'll find that really interesting. We're going to hear from epidemiologist Tammy Hoffman about why we need to look beyond vaccines when we think about how to prevent the spread of viruses, whether it's COVID-19 or any new viruses that might emerge in the future. In our first story today, we're taking a look at how COVID-19 has affected the labour market and particularly women's employment. David Duran is a non-resident fellow at the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, and he's one of Australia's leading economic writers. He's published books on Australia's relationship with China, Australia's policy and attitudes toward foreign investment, and the Rudd government's management of the global financial crisis. Today, though, he's talking to Left After Breakfast about a new report he's written, The Unequal Burden of the COVID-19 Labour Market Collapse. Now, this report points out that the burden of the COVID-19 recession is falling most heavily upon low-paid personnel and household services occupations, and the impact of that is most severe on women. So I began by asking David Duren why. I think it's partly because employment in low-paid occupations is dominated by women. Another is amidst the forced close downs, many women have wound up having to leave their work to look after children. You know, that burden generally falls more heavily on women. And then there's probably just a bit of the stereotyping that the man is the breadwinner, so he, he keeps his job and the woman loses hers. Part-time employment is much, much greater amongst women than it is amongst men. It could well be part-time jobs, casual jobs are the easiest to dispense with. So I think they're probably amongst the reasons. And how is this different from the global financial crisis 2008? Something that was really striking about the global financial crisis in the US was that it was not the lowest paid who lost their jobs. So there's been a polarisation in the labour force with growth in employment at the top end, professions, consultants, accountants, and there's been growth at the bottom end, household services, hospitality. The things that have gone missing have been many of the middle jobs that have been affected principally by computerisation. So that polarisation you're talking about over the last 20 years? It's sort of been gathering force really since the 90s. It's, It's a process that has been going on in Australia over a long period, but we haven't had anything quite as acute. When you talk about service industries, you've distinguished between 
business service industries and personal service industries. So what's the difference? The Reserve Bank did quite an interesting analysis, this is probably two years ago, where it looked at where has the, the big growth in employment been in Australia over the, really since, say, 2000. They identified two major areas, business services, so from lawyers to management consultants to bankers. You go into any central business district and they're the people who are populating it. And then there's household services, so it can include retail, hospitality, your tradespeople, your gardeners, plumbers, house cleaners. Those have been the two really big areas of employment growth. I think from memory, business services have increased about 1.2 million jobs over the last 20 years, household services, 1.4 million jobs. When you look at COVID-19, then in your paper, you've said it's the personal service industries that have really suffered. They've suffered the most. They've been the most directly affected by the barriers on face-to-face contact. So there are two effects from the coronavirus crisis. The first is the immediate shutdowns enforced by the government. The second is the weakening in demand across the economy as everybody stops spending. So businesses stop investing, consumers stop spending. The forced shutdown that is very heavily focused on low-paid workers. But the reduction in demand is having effects across the economy. So it's wrong to say that the effects are exclusively on the low-paid. But if you add up the numbers, that's where it's falling heaviest. And who've just tuned in, I'm speaking with David Uren from the University of Sydney. Statistics published by the ABS this week showing the fall in employment from 14th of March to 18th of April this year and clearly demonstrate that women have been disproportionately affected. More women have lost their jobs when you look at the difference between men and women. I asked David Duran if he was surprised. I was surprised at just how across the board, almost every industry, there are a couple of minor exceptions where the fall has been roughly equal. Education and government service, you know, are a couple. But it is very striking that things like the arts and recreation, so there have been very heavy job falls there. There's a gap of about seven percentage points between the fall in male and female employment in that industry. In hospitality, it's also a big gender gap between men and women. The Employment Recruitment Service, SEEK, they do some interesting analysis of what's been happening with job advertisements. And obviously, job advertisements have plunged across the board. Something that was interesting was that if you look at the average salary being advertised, and I think these are figures for March, so it's before the full impact of the COVID crisis hit, the average salary showed quite a significant increase. So the reason was because the only jobs that were being advertised were the senior ones. All the junior jobs had gone. So it's the low-paid jobs, even within low-paid sectors like hospitality, it's the low-paid jobs that are disappearing most rapidly. With regard to women, are you seeing similar patterns in the US? One of the issues that we face is that the standard statistical bureau surveys, they always come up with quite a lag. So there's been some academic surveys done in the US uh, attempting to replicate what the statistic agencies would do. And they're showing that women 
I think, 7% more likely to have lost their jobs than men in the United States. It's a very big margin. I I suspect it's broadly the same reasons, that it's the low-paid occupations that are the biggest employers of women. Within those low-paid occupations, it's the women who are working part-time or casual and lose their jobs first. What are the prospects for women in Australia coming out of the COVID-19 crisis? It's hard to tell exactly what the economy is going to be like on the other side of it. There are many who think once the restrictions are lifted, the restaurants will reopen and we'll kind of bounce back. The footy will start up again and uh, we'll be back to where we were and it'll be a bit like a bad dream and something bad has happened, but it's passed. The history shows when you get a recession, when you get a big rise in unemployment, it takes a long time for that rate to go down. It can shoot up in the space of a month or two. I think most economic modelling suggests that it will take three to five years before it returns to where we were. Whilst it's, it's quite possible that the restrictions will be lifted, they'll be eased starting from next week in, in Victoria, I think it can be a very long time before things really gets back to normal. And the fact is that so many people have lost so much income, even if their jobs return, they've taken on more debt, their financial position is worse, they'll be spending less. So there's an impact on demand across the economy just because there's been such a shock to everybody's incomes. Yes, and coming back again to low-paid workers, the government has obviously uh, increased the amount of money it's giving to people through the, the job seeker. Is it going to be important, do you think, as an economist, that they maintain higher income? I mean, at the moment, the job keeper and the increase to the job seeker were introduced. It was said that they would last until August and then they'd be withdrawn. Well, if you suddenly withdraw that support, then you're going to have a a really immediate and, and significant impact on the ability of many low-paid people to make ends meet, that will have a negative economic impact. I think the government has been displaying some awareness of this. Just in recent days, they've been talking about there may need to be additional support for the most severely hurt industries, such as hospitality, recreation and the arts. How they do that, I don't think they've quite worked out. And there is the question of, you know, what do they do with Newstart? Everybody said that Newstart was not a survivable income before the COVID crisis. The government always had the notion, well, it's just a a fill-in payment, you know, while people are between jobs. Well, I think they're now facing a position where it's going to be plainly apparent that there just aren't jobs, enough jobs to go around for quite a long time. And I think there will be very significant pressure on the government to make a permanent and significant increase to the level of new start. And I hope David Duren is right about that. So it was David Duren from the University of Sydney. He's a non-resident fellow at the United States Studies Centre. Coming up now, it's Oitha. Our Earth's Heart acknowledges with Cruisin. Great song that came out last year. Drop the top. 
with my sisters, popping up the bits. All black memories I click on the streets. Pop, pop, in the back speaker. I'm sitting low with my fresh pair of sneakers. I'm marinating in my liquor, yeah, I'm thicker than my other sisters. We just like the pictures of a Mona Lisa hanging smoke from my mouth. Riding low, sipping, gripping grain in the south. Family for life, this one thing that I fight for. Dedicate this to my baby girl, firstborn. I wear my colors on the inside. Just sit back, enjoy the nightlife. When we ride, I confess the words that I bless. This is my loyalty down to my last breath. Vibrations, straight up, unlimited destinations. Looking real deadly for a special occasion. Exclusive, sister girl, hip hop invasion. Hands on the wheel and the wind in my hair. Kicking with my girls, cause we just don't care. We're beautiful, we're black, and we bout to get loud. So turn up the music and let's roll out. Got my titties in the back, and we're heading to the south. Showing you all what a black woman is about. We got the QLD, SA, and VIC. Lady Lab, Miss Hood, and the D-I-Double-Z. This is an incredible exclusive production. Music is a passion, it's the way that we function. Awitha, coming at you with full force. Awitha, are we too deadly? Of course. Future generations, each moment's priceless. That's why we live on borrowed times. Press rewind to rewire your memories of fun. Better days with your family in the sunshine. We soaking up the rays and leaving the worries and troubles behind. Can y'all feel that? That's called fulfillment. Got me and Lady Lasher dizzy doing the column and then every killing a miss. The old sound bringing it back. Tweaking on behalf of the masses. I was straight where you at. Cause I'm ready to got your back. CR Community Radio 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
Tammy Hoffman is a professor of clinical epidemiology at the Institute of Evidence-Based Healthcare at Bond University. Last month, she had an article published on The Conversation. It was quite an intriguing title, What If the Vaccine or Drugs Don't Save Us? Plan B for coronavirus means research on alternatives is urgently needed. Now, I thought this was a both interesting and important perspective on what's been going on. By focusing so much on the vaccine, what are we ignoring? So we're ignoring all the things that we're doing currently. So because we don't have a vaccine and because none of the drugs that are being trialled certainly so far don't look like they're going to be effective, the only thing we've got left is what we're doing currently, which falls into the very broad category of non-drug interventions. So it's all the social, behavioural, public health, um, environmental things. Masks, hand washing, the social distancing, the quarantining, the you know the disinfecting the environment, all of those things. It's everything else except a drug or a vaccine. Yes, and you know these things feel like the things that people did before the days of penicillin. I'm wondering, have we become too reliant on drugs to solve all our health problems, and should we be kind of bringing back some of those practices? Absolutely. I mean, there's an oft-quoted saying that, you know, as a society, we've become obsessed with a pill for every ill. And we see that in, a, in modern healthcare now, where people often would think that there's a drug or an injection or a surgery or, or something for lots of chronic diseases, whereas often a lot of the non-drug interventions like exercise and the psychological therapies can have just as much effect and without any of the harms. In the last few decades, as a society, we tend to think, oh, the, the scientists will come up with some cure or some treatment, but that's not always the case. And even if we can, it's not always necessarily a good thing because with every drug or every vaccine, there's side effects and you've got to weigh up the balance of benefits versus harms. I have been also thinking about the first public health revolution with the introduction of clean water and sanitation that reduced greatly the amount of disease. And I also realize that in some countries, that first public health revolution hasn't happened yet. Are we in that realm of having to look at the environmental situations? Absolutely. So for malaria, the um, the use of insecticide-treated mosquito nets over beds is one of the most effective things that can be done, particularly to reduce um, childhood mortality. And that's a very sort of straightforward non-drug intervention. So non-drug interventions and public health interventions and all these things often get ignored or dismissed as sort of seen as low tech and they're not sexy and they're not overly complicated. They're kind of boring and basic. They're absolutely essential. And I think also because they're seen as quite simple interventions that it's assumed that research isn't needed on them. As you spoke, I was thinking, yes, they're not going to generate much money for drug companies. No, no. And so there's no patents, you know, so nobody makes money out of them. You mentioned the need for research on non-drug interventions and also that they're very complex. So what kind of research is available So we've just done some systematic reviews, which is where you gather all the available evidence and look at, is it effective to um, interrupt the spread of of respiratory infections? Um, Obviously, none done already on this particular coronavirus, COVID-19, but there's been 
um, some done on the regular acute respiratory infections, the common cold, the influenzas. So we tried to look at what's all the evidence for the various non-drug interventions for these respiratory infections. For masks, there's only a handful of studies and the evidence is quite mixed as to how much of a difference they make. It's not a straightforward answer. Yes, they work and absolutely everybody should be wearing them all the time or no, they have no benefit. It's really much more nuanced than that and leads to the fact that we actually need more and better quality trials to be able to get more answers. Hand hygiene is the non-drug intervention that we have the most number of trials of. But even so, with hand hygiene, there's still some unanswered questions. So there's been one study from the childcare centre and it looked at frequency of hand washing, making children wash their hands every hour versus uh, one group then wash them every two hours and one group wash them just before you know, eating, like morning tea and lunch. It found that the group that washed them every hour had a greater reduction in the number of children with illnesses like acute respiratory infections versus the other two groups. That's the only study we could find that compared things like the frequency of hand washing. There's only been two studies that have compared hand washing with soap versus using hand sanitizer, which needs a few more trials so we can be more sure. But it may be because hand sanitizer is quick and it's easy and you can have it wherever you are and, you know, on your office desk or in the car or wherever versus soap and water, which you do need access to water and soap. And you do need to do it for that, you know, at least 20 seconds, which when we're asking people to do that for many, many, many months, um, that's a behaviour change that may be hard for people to sustain. With unanswered questions, even about something as simple as what's the best way to wash your hands. Yes, one of the points you, you've led me to there is that, uh, of course, for some people in some situations, washing your hands with soap or even hand sanitizer, because hand sanitizer costs money, is going to be difficult. For example, a person who's homeless would have difficulty doing that. Absolutely. So there's all those broader environmental issues and and public health issues to consider. So a non-drug intervention might be assumed to be simple, but they're complex in very different ways to a vaccine development. And if you just tuned in, you just woke up, just turned your radio on, you're on 3CR, and I'm speaking with Tammy Hoffman, a professor of clinical epidemiology at Bond University. Now, as an epidemiologist, Tammy would study patterns of health and illness, and uh, she'd be definitely aware that the, the greater burden of illness is borne by the poor in our society. So I asked her whether this would be taken into consideration in the non-drug intervention research that she was proposing. I would think that any any non-drug intervention um, needs to consider, you know, the environment and the context in which people are being asked to do it. And you do mention the built environment as an area for research, I think, in your paper. So there's a little bit of research emerging about airflow and air conditioning systems and their role in spreading or, you know, halting the spread of acute respiratory infections. Also things like, you know, how often should we be in public places, you know, disinfecting lift buttons and escalator railings and all of those things. So there's lots, there's just lots of unknowns because we haven't really turned our attention, we as a, as a society, to thinking, oh, we should get some answers to this so that we know. One of the points that I think it's important to make, and that's why we're calling for sort of greater awareness of the need to invest in non-drug research, is that if we get the answers, reduce some of the unknowns now, it's going to help us for any future epidemic or pandemic. If a vaccine is developed, and as I said, let's hope that it is, it will be specific to this virus. So the next time a 
virus of whatever origin or whatever type emerges, we have to start the whole quest for a vaccine or a drug treatment again. Whereas these non-drug interventions are much more generic in the sense that they can be applied to lots of illnesses. And now's a really good time to be trying to pin down some of the answers about how to best do these non-drug interventions. And there's lots of people who are in evidence-based healthcare around the world now who are saying, you know, there's so many things we just don't know about the best way to be doing this or what we shouldn't be doing. And if we're putting time and effort into encouraging people to do behaviours that are not effective, is it coming at the expense of them not doing things that are effective? We're, We're sort of throwing a whole package of instructions at people at the moment but we don't have strong evidence on which of those is the most effective and should we be focusing our efforts on a few of those versus lots of little things and it'd be nice if some of the the guidance that we're being given was more was more evidence-based. I really think your point here is so important all the points you've made we've got this one now and say we get the vaccine but what about when the next one comes? Absolutely so one of the things as researchers as you know applied researchers like what we are doing trials with people one of the things we really struggle with sometimes is to get a decent sample size decent numbers participating in trials as this is affecting everybody we're trying to prevent everybody from getting this then now's the ideal time to be conducting the trials while it's a a topical issue and that was professor tammy hoffman from bond university we're going to hear from mavis staples and I'm playing Mavis Staples today because um, she was here at the Zoo Twilight concerts this year and also at Warm Adelaide and uh, really just an amazing performer. So I hope you'll enjoy that. You're on 3CR. The show is Left After Breakfast. Thank you. 
that was Mavis Staples with the song Stronger. Such a beautiful song and such an incredible voice. Next up, we're hearing from Christian Slattery. He's a campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation, or ACF. And this week, the ACF released a report entitled Water for Coal. The study was conducted by Ian Overton. He's an associate professor in water resources at the University of Adelaide Centre for Global Food and Resources. I asked Christian Slattery why the Australian Conservation Foundation commissioned this report. We know that in the last few years, large parts of Australia have experienced really extreme drought. Uh, You know, there's been record dry conditions in the interior of Australia that's been threatening farmers, regional communities uh, and and the environment. And, you know, there have even been some towns that have um, faced really extreme water shortages and had to have water trucked into them. But we were interested in evaluating the more direct impacts of the coal industry on Australia's water resources. So actually looking at that contest, which is happening uh, on the ground in regional Australia between coal mines uh, and agriculture. So that's really what we were interested in with this report. That's come out very clearly. I mean, there's a lot of data in that report that's incredibly useful in understanding what's been happening. Were you surprised at the extent of water use by the coal industry? Well, we always knew that the coal industry was a big water user, but I think this is the first time that uh, the kind of industry's entire impact on Australia's water systems has been assessed. So what we found was that um, in New South Wales and Queensland, where the the vast majority of Australia's black coal mines and coal-fired power stations are located, although, you know, I'd note this research obviously doesn't take into account the coal mining in Latrobe Valley in Victoria, and there are a couple of other mines around the country. But nevertheless, just looking at New South Wales and Queensland, what we found was that the mines and the coal-fired power stations in those states consume about 380 billion litres of fresh water each year. And that's equivalent to the domestic water use of Greater Sydney, uh, or about 5.2 million people. That's hard to believe. That's gobsmacking. Yeah, it's, it's quite staggering. And it's also probably a conservative estimate. So one of the challenges that we found in doing this research is that while there's a pretty good reporting regime in New South Wales that our um, researcher who did this work, was able to look at. He was able to dig into the annual reports for 39 coal mines. In Queensland, there's no standardised reporting framework and there's just very little publicly available information about how much water these uh, coal mines and coal-fired power stations use. So we had to extrapolate based on the information that was available to work out how much water was being used by the industry in Queensland. And I think there's obviously a very good reason why the industry doesn't publish this data, and that's because it is so damning. Like their impact on our natural environment 
is so extensive. Um, it's not just climate change, which is obviously one of our principal concerns with uh, the coal industry, but it's also really direct impact on our water systems as well. So it's the coal industry itself that's required to keep these records, not the government? In New South Wales, it's a sort of self-reporting system. So the, the, the Minerals Council in New South Wales has a reporting framework that they encourage miners to use and, and the mining companies use it. But in Queensland, there's just absolutely no framework for reporting water use by coal mines. That's really concerning. So what were some of the key findings? Yeah, so there's, there's that sort of headline figure around the 380 billion litres of fresh water per year. But then there's an even bigger figure, which is the amount of water the industry actually takes at some point. So some, some water they take and use, for example, in their cooling towers at a coal-fired power station and then it's charged back into rivers and streams. So that water is then available for other uses. And then the 380 billion litres that I mentioned is actually just no longer available for any other use. So when you take into account all of the water that the coal industry is, um, I guess, interacting with on an annual basis, it's over 2 trillion litres per year. Um, and while a lot of that water can be used for other purposes, like agriculture and go back into the, into the environment again, there's also significant portions of it that um, they're either polluted or the water is returned at a higher temperature, which means that it can have adverse impact for fish and other aquatic ecosystems as well. And you've already mentioned that there's a kind of tension between the water that agriculture needs and the water that is needed for mining. Is there some comparison of that? Coal-fired power stations and um, coal mines, particularly coal mines, are often co-located in agricultural regions. Um, So, for example, the Bowen Basin in Queensland, the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. And what we found is that the the coal industry in those areas um, is withdrawing about 30% as much water as the agricultural sector. You know, a lot of that water is then water that can't be used for for growing crops uh, and feeding and cattle. Agriculture actually uses more than coal, right? Coal uses 30%. Yeah, that's that's making sure I understood that. The agricultural sector is obviously a huge water user in this country as well. Um, Produce a lot of food here. But it's interesting when you dig down into um, some of those regions and look at the frontline stories that emerge from some of those places. You know, in the Hunter Valley, the coal industry bought up about 83% of the priority water licences in that region. So that means that when there's a drought, coal mines get first rights to access that water. And that means that, you know, if the water gets to a point where there's not enough for everyone, it's coal mines that will be fed, not um, crops. People can be thirsty. Uh, but coal mines will be fed by the sound. That's right. Worrying and also it's it's a huge thing to get your head around because there's just so many aspects of it. I'm just wondering, and I'm sure people listening will be wondering, how does the water required for clean energy, for example, compare Mm. to water required for coal production? Look, it's a really good question. And our report did look at that. So Clean energy requires about 120 times less water, wind farms um, and solar farms, 120 times less water than coal-fired power uh, generation. So when you dig down to the numbers, um, to generate the same amount of electricity, solar and wind are using about 10 litres per megawatt hour compared to about 
1,250 litres per megawatt hour for your average black coal-fired power station. Well, that's a, a huge difference. And as you know, you do point out in your report, as pointed out, Australia has been, and it's been said so many times, you know, the driest continent. I mean, you would think that there would be really strong oversight of water use in this country. And that figure, the difference between renewables and coal-fired, why would you continue with coal? Why would you not be increasing your sustainable energy, your resource? Yeah, and you know, we're in a moment right now with coronavirus where we're starting to, fortunately in Australia, we're able to start turning our mind away from the kind of immediate public health crisis and start thinking about how we reconstruct and rebuild our economy. And I think one of the questions that needs to be asked is, are we going to return to dirty, polluting industries like coal, or are we going to make a choice to invest in clean, renewable energy, which isn't just better for our climate, but it's better, clearly, for our water systems as well. And our our world uh, as well. In a country this dry, you would expect strong regulatory frameworks governing water, What did your report find? We found that the regulatory frameworks are really weak. There's a lack of consistent available data. That's why a report like this hasn't really been done before. Uh, It's not been a widely reported issue in terms of the industry's entire impact on, on water. We've had anecdotal evidence from mines like Adani's or the Malls Creek mine, which have highlighted really concerning issues with water use by the coal industry, but there hasn't really been a report that's looked at uh, this at a kind of national scale before. So what needs to happen? Obviously, this situation is untenable. What would you like to see? What would the Australian Conservation Foundation be calling for? We're calling on the federal government, the state government, and really all 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 tiers of government to use this moment to invest in clean and renewable energy um, and to transition our economy to one that's good for nature and good for people. The people listening, I'm sure, will be concerned. What can they do? What we're asking people to do is write a letter to your local newspaper and draw this report to their attention. It's a really great opportunity. I think a lot of us are spending a lot more time at home um, and this is a great opportunity to be having these sorts of conversations with people in our local communities and, and putting this issue front and centre and asking that question, what sort of society do we want to build when we return to work? And we're not focused on the, on the public health crisis and, and focused on rebuilding our economy. How can we build an economy that works for everyone? Yes, I've also read reports about the links between COVID-19 and the degradation of the environment. We're all focused on COVID-19. Actually, it's related to the environmental story. So we need to be aware of that as well. Are you saying that this report is the first time that all of these figures, and as you also say, it's hard to get those figures, they're not easy to access. But is this the first time someone's attempted to pull all that together? First one that we're aware of, um, looking at the data in this way and and trying to work out, you know, quantifying kind of aggregate terms, the um, amount of water that's used by the coal industry. There are obviously um, lots of reports done for, for coal mines, for example, when they're going through environmental approval processes. But not all of the coal mines that are in operation today uh, went, you know, went through the same uh, approval process. Some of them were, were built a long time ago. And yeah. so that level of environmental impact assessment may not have been as rigorous. Um, so while there might be you know, a lot of analysis that's been done around the Adani coal mines water impacts, which are somewhere in the region of up to 20 billion litres of water each and every year, 
Um, you know, there are other mines operating around the country that we just don't know because the reporting frameworks, have, or we just didn't know because the reporting frameworks are, are, are so weak. Um, mm. So I think that's one of the real take-homes is that there needs to be a much better better reporting of these projects and their impact on water systems. We, the public, have a right to know where our where the water in this country is going. Yeah, for sure. And what kind of response have you had to your report? Look, we've had a really positive response. Certainly regional media have been really interested in picking it up and getting their head around the, the facts and figures in it. We've been having some really great conversations with people who support the ACF and uh, who've also been really fascinated to, to dig down into this data. So yeah, hopefully it, it continues to spark some further really productive conversations. And it's good to have a piece of research out there that we can really keep going back to, keep prosecuting the case that the coal industry's impacts on Australia are disproportionate. Like they have their signature on the drought that we've experienced, the bushfires that we experienced over the summer and have really long-term consequences for the availability of water in this country. Christian Slattery, a campaigner from the Australian Conservation Foundation. And if you want a copy or a summary of that report, you can just Google ACF, find them both there. You're on 3CR. The show is Left After Breakfast. I'm Judith Peppard, hosting the show for Susanna Duffy and the team. Here's Baker Boy with Cool as Hell. Like a lone wolf dancing in the streetlight, howling at the moon. When I hear the beat, not a guy, but boy, that's what a brother do. Spreading that mood, bro. Get me on the dance floor. We could have a dance off, do it all night. Feeling all juiced up, getting my groove on. Set it up super, we could take a flight. Alright? I said, ooh, you got me feeling myself. Now I put it on you. Cool as hell. I said, ooh, you got me feeling myself. Now put it on you Looking back, are you really on track? Are you really on the path to where you wanna be? Doing out of Nungo, only know me. I ain't in the coma, I really don't sleep. I ain't even tripping every minute that I'm living. I'ma kill it on the rhythm, we can keep it low key. I said, ooh, you got me feeling myself. Now I put it on you. Cool as hell. I said, ooh, you got me feeling myself. Now I put it on you.
fabulous baker boy with cool as hell. You're listening to 3CR, where at this time we're bringing you slightly different programming than usual. But rest assured, we're still here, bringing you radical, alternative current affairs, music and community language programming. Stay tuned to 3CR. Now I'm wondering, have you ever made pickles? Are you tempted to venture into that territory? Well, Donna Lee Bryan thinks it's a perfect time to try. Donna's a professor in creative industries and head of the School of Creative and Performing Arts at Central Queensland University. She does research about food writers and their influence. And last week, she published an article in The Conversation about why now is a perfect time to try pickling. But a bit of a warning, uh, in case you haven't had breakfast yet... Early on in the interview, Donna tells us about additives commercial traders in Victorian England put in pickles and other foods, which truly was a reason to make your own pickles in those days. Pickling is very ancient. Many of us might remember our grandmas having pickles in their cupboards, but it goes back 4,000 years. One of the great benefits is it increases the shelf life of a food product. That was, of course, important before refrigeration and very important, say, when people used to come out to Australia on sea without refrigeration so that you could preserve all kinds of foods for a long time. You refer to Mrs. Beaton's Everyday Cookery and Housekeeping book, not just any edition, but the 1893 edition in which Mrs. Beaton warns people about commercially produced pickles of the day. What were some of the risks? If you really get into looking at Victorian food and anxiety around commercially produced food, I mean, we might look at labelling and, you know, have our concerns about some of the food we buy at the supermarket. But we do live in an age where producers... I meant to put on the labels what's in there and then it's up to us to have a look at what those things mean. But in previous eras, you know, you bought a jar of something and really you didn't know what was in it. And there were, oh, so many additives to so many different foods, plaster dust in bread, um, mashed up bricks to give a red colour, tea being sold with old used dried tea leaves in it, you know, anything that you could add that was cheaper than what you were actually selling or that could extend it or that could make it look better. And what they used to do with cucumbers and particularly gherkins was use a particularly toxic green colour that at the time was known to be poisonous and indeed was poisonous. Her concern was true, but it was part of this other general worry about commercially bought food. And Mrs. Beaton would have been like an authority on food in the late 1800s in in England. Definitely. Her cookbook and household management book was the volume. Interestingly, though, so many of her recipes are so doable, quite simple, especially with these enduring type products. There's nothing to be sniffed at it. And, you know, what is it, a 130-year-old recipe? And have you used some? I have, not actually for the pickles, but for other things. We're just a couple, so I tend to be cooking, you know, for two plus maybe some leftovers. But often her recipes are for 12. You have to adopt them. But but her jams, her pickles, I've made some of her chutneys and they're perfect. 
I love that there's a cookbook produced that long ago and the recipes are still good and they still stand up. Mm. That's fantastic. So what were some of the first records of a European pickling tradition in Australia? With settler cooking, there was pickles. You know, there was in refrigeration, particularly in the early days, not a very varied diet. Every preponderance on meat and food was seasonal, but you didn't necessarily have the wide range. And so pickles were necessary. And of course, housewives, particularly in rural areas, but also in the city, grew a lot of produce, had produce left over. That's one of the fantastic uses of pickles. All the very early cookbooks of Australia always included pickles. And definitely the sort of cooks that came to Australia, pickling would have been part of their repertoires. What I found interesting also is that there's a conservation aspect of this, like preserving food and minimising waste, not throwing things away. About when did it occur that people had refrigeration, like that it was common for people to have fridges in their homes? The post-war period is also that increasing affluence after the war and, and through the 50s and especially into the 60s. We were definitely later than the United States because you see um, movies and read books from the 1920s and that, you know, refrigeration, having a fridge in your apartment seemed very common in the 1920s and it certainly wasn't in Australia You know, they were coming in, but they were totally luxury goods. As we got into the post-war period and that, you know, increasing um, purchase of white goods, you know, both large and small. Yes. And I think that was at the time too where there were there were more convenience foods as well and women started working more. You know, what was a very common household skill for many housewives, was mostly housewives, doing it to fall out of common daily practice. Donna Lee Bryan from Central Queensland University, and she studies uh, cookbooks and cookery writing. Now she's going to tell us about Aunt Daisy's cookbook. Aunt Daisy was a great celebrity, what we'd call a celebrity chef from New Zealand, but through radio. She had a daily radio program for, I believe, over three decades she used to have this very spirited personality and I think read some prayers and do some recipes and totally iconic everyone of a certain generation would know Aunt Daisy but her cookbook that 1968 one she had sadly already died by then that was a collection after her death her recipes are much more hearkening back to that do-it-yourself ethos that's in a lot of the Australian earlier cookbooks. By the time we get to Margaret Fulton, I mean, that is a wonderful, that encyclopedia of food and cookery. It is an encyclopedia. It's in alphabetical order, letting you know if you're interested in pickling, you know, this is what they are, this is how they work. It's a bit of science, but much more as a sort of, oh, so you'd like to try pickling, a bit more our kind of ethos. In your article, you've mentioned four cookbooks they're always written by women what do they tell us about (laughs) women's lives and labor over that time that is a way of reading cookbooks and that is so interesting because it definitely has changed those early cookbooks say someone like mrs beaton was speaking as much to a cook as to a housewife a house might buy a 
and Mrs. Beaton's compendium and the lady of the house would advise her cook or work with her cook to make some exciting pickles. So that was a time, though, when already at the end of the 19th century, the household servant was reducing in commonality as many women went to work in factories and seek other types of employment. It was starting to open up at the end of the 19th century. Mrs Beaton was also intended for housewives whose mothers couldn't tell them how to make pickles. The Country Women's Association and the Aunt Daisy, and that's Australia and, and New Zealand, they're thinking that most women were housewives. You know, women did work. It is ridiculous to think no women worked. Women did work outside the home, but a lot of women were spent a lot of their time in household duties and pickling could be seen as part of the yearly scheme of labour. I, I don't think pickles were something you made every week. Definitely would have been part of your annual production. Some of these cookbooks talk about you mightn't grow cucumbers, but when your sister gives you a bucket. So, you know, you, other people had gardens. By the time we get to the modern ones, there's a much more idea of still mostly aimed at women, that they're the cookbooks I read, I guess. But, you know, here you are, you're this modern woman and cooking can actually be a pleasure and something really creative and pickling can fit into that. So it is quite interesting, as you said, looking at women's work through those cookbooks. What do cookbooks add to the historical record? They do. They tell us so much, not necessarily exactly what people ate, because like today, many of us buy cookbooks and might not make all the recipes, but definitely sort of what they were interested in eating or thinking about eating. They tell you a lot about the sort of foods that were available, the technologies that were used and available different attitudes to things like chemical use. There are recipes in Mrs. Beaton that use things that we would really use to clean out the car engine, you know, that we would not be putting in our mouths. Really different attitudes to that and different attitudes to how people spend their time. I think when you go back in cookbooks, there's a lot more time-consuming processes you know, people had time and that circling round to part of why we're, you know, sort of having this conversation is because I think people might be finding they've got time that they didn't have. Yes. And of course, there's a lot of talk of people making bread as well. So we're certainly, yes. you know, those conversations yeah. are yeah. around. And I think probably people finding some pleasure in just going back to mm. of those practices. Mm. That's what I feel mm. like picking up anyway. You have yes. mentioned the almost instant cucumber pickles or refrigerator pickles. <laughs> How yes. quickly can you tell us about those? So you just chop up your cucumber. And I do, on the recipe, I have exact amounts yes, I that I worked out. But, yeah. Yes. But really, you just slice up your cucumber, put it in a bowl. I just slosh, you know, a slosh of vinegar, a bit of salt, a bit of sugar, some chives or for flavour if you want to, a little bit of water because the vinegar can be a bit strong and swirl it up and you've, you've actually got a pickle. 
that will last in the fridge for a few days. I like to make that, say, an hour or two before dinner. It is a bit of a cheats pickle, but it's, it's delicious. Donna Bryan, a professor in creative industries and head of School of Creative and Performing Arts at Central Queensland University. And here it is, the recipe for cheat pickles. One tablespoon of vinegar can be any kind, apple cider, white wine, or rice. One tablespoon of cold water, two teaspoons of sugar, white, raw, or brown, a quarter teaspoon of salt, and one cucumber, washed, peeled or not, depending on the variety. And that's me sorted for the weekend. And that's the show for today. Thank you for tuning in to Left After Breakfast, and thank you to all our guests, David Duran at the top of the show, Tammy Hoffman, Christian Slattery, and Donna Lee Bryan. And since I'm in an at-home and pickling sort of mood, thinking about produce, I'm going to go out with just a little bit. We've just got time for a little bit of Homegrown Tomatoes by Texan singer Guy Clark. Ain't nothing in the world that I like better than bacon and lettuce and homegrown tomatoes. Up in the morning, out in the garden, get you a ripe one, don't get a hard one. Plant them in the spring, eat them in the summer. All winter without them's a culinary bummer. I forget all about the sweating and digging every time I go out and pick me a pick. Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes. What'll I be without homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money can't buy, and that's true love and homegrown tomatoes. Well, you can go out to eat, and that's for sure, but it's nothing the homegrown tomato won't cure. Put them in a salad. Put them in a stew, you can make your very own tomato juice. You can eat them with eggs, you can eat them with gravy. Eat them with beans, pinto or navy. Put them on the side, put them in the middle. Put a homegrown tomato on a hot cake griddle. Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes. What'll life be without homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money can't buy, and that's true love and homegrown tomatoes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.